Well, friends, in this third and final session, I want to continue the meditation that we have been giving based on uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 20, and 21, as we've considered how we might uh, reason with the wise, with the disputer of this age. And then finally, in this third session, we want to ask about reasoning with them that believe, with ordinary believers in the body of Christ, whether church officers or committed members in our churches, in, with respect to the proper text, the true text, the pure text of the Word of God. I want to address two topics, if I may, in this lecture, and we're going to spend a lot more time on the first one than the second one. And the first thing I want to address is a very practical matter, namely the claim that is made by some that Scrivener's TR, which is the standard TR used by most people who hold to the confessional text, that that text was back-translated into Greek from the King James Version. This argument, I believe, is often made in an attempt to dissuade ordinary pastors and ordinary Christians from embracing the confessional text. And that's why it's coming in this lecture, because that argument is often made to dissuade ordinary believers. Most times going to be given to that. Then secondly, hopefully if time allows, I want to address the charge that confessional bibliology promotes a dangerous view in conflict with the teaching of the Bible itself that we are textual absolutists. Um, I want to look at that charge. Is it wrong or spiritually unhealthy to want a Bible in which one may have the highest degree of trust and certainty? Is that a vice uh, rather than a virtue? So let's begin, though, with the one that's going to take the most time, and that's responding to the claim that Scrivener's TR, again, this edition which generally serves uh, in our contemporary context as a standard printed edition of the TR that's used today. Was it back translated from the King James Version into Greek? The popular internet apologist James White, in a video lecture from January the 4th of 2019 at Covenant Baptist Seminary, held up Scribner's TR, and he had the nice blue one, he didn't have the, the black covered one here, and as he is prone to do, he said, quote, This is a Greek text based on an English translation called the King James Version. White later adds, So this is the King James New Testament in Greek. YouTuber Dwayne Green posted a video to his channel on October the 14th of 2021 titled, why Scrivener reverse-engineered the Texas Receptus. In that video, Green begins his presentation as follows. Quote, if you have purchased yourself a TR, chances are you have the 1881 version that Scrivener had put together. And if you have the 1881 version that Scrivener put together, did you know that you're using a reverse-engineered Texas Receptus? End quote. He continues. Quote, so the 1881 text of the TR has actually been sort of, I don't want to say back translated, but you could almost say back translated from the King James Version. 
So what happened was that when Scrivener was doing his work on the text, he was actually trying to get the TR to match the exact wording of the King James Version. So what he had done, unlike most textual critics, when you're trying to put together a New Testament, you consult individual manuscripts and you compare readings and you figure out which one is more likely to be authentic and you put that in the text, end quote. Notice the claims. Scrivener's TR was back translated from the King James Version. It follows the exact wording of the King James Version and it's a bad text because it did not consult individual manuscripts. So that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to get to that, but to give us a little bit of background, because obviously, again, maybe some people before never heard the word Scrivener. <laughs> okay, so the Scrivener text is the one that's typically used today, published by the Trinitarian Bible Society. I want to begin by telling you a little bit about F.H.A. Scrivener who lived from 1813 to 1891. My primary source is the entry on Scrivener written by E.C. Marchant in the Dictionary of National Biography, volume 51, written in 1897. Frederick Henry Ambrose Scrivener was born on September the 29th of 1813 in London to Ambrose and Harriet Scholl, Scrivener. His father was a stationer, a paper merchant. In July of 1831, he entered Trinity College, Cambridge, where he earned the BA degree in 1835 and the MS degree in 1838. On July 21, 1840, he married Anne Blofeld. In his professional career, he served both as a schoolmaster and as a Church of England cleric. From 1846 to 1856, he served as the headmaster of the Falmouth School in Cornwall. Marchant notes that in addition to teaching and ministry, quote, Scrivener devoted his life to the study of the New Testament, end quote. In 1845, he wrote a work titled A Supplement to the Authorized English Version of the New Testament. His first important scholarly publication was a collation of 20 gospel manuscripts in 1853. In 1861, he published his landmark work titled A Plain Introduction to the Criticism of the New Testament for the Use of Biblical Students. That was the Metzgers, really, of the 19th century. A second edition was produced in 1874, a third edition in 1883, and a fourth posthumous edition was edited by Edward Miller. In 1864, he published his Collation of the Sinaiticus and Codex Bezae. He produced the Cambridge Paragraph Bible of the Authorized Version in eight volumes from 1870 to 1878. He published six lectures on the text of the New Testament in 1874, and his work, Adversia Critica Sacra, was also published after his death. Late in his career, his contributions to the field of biblical studies was universally acknowledged in his homeland. Quite notably, he served on the Revision Committee for the English Bible, formed at the Convocation at Canterbury from 1870 to 1882. This was the committee that ended up trying to revise the King James Version, producing really the first 
rival to the King James Version, the English Revised Version. And Westcott and Hort were also on this committee, and from it they produced the first modern critical text that uh, really uh, challenged and attempted to topple the, the preeminence of the Texas Receptus. Well, he was on that committee. In Frederick G. Kenyon's 1909 article, English Versions, for the Dictionary of the Bible, edited by James Hastings, Kenyon suggests that while Westcott and Hort exercised immense influence on the committee, there were conservative voices that offered resistance to many of the changes promoted by the committee. He makes special mention of Scribner, whom he describes as, quote, taking a less advanced view of the necessity of changes to the received text, end quote. We do not want inaccurately to suggest that Scribner would have agreed wholly with the perspective of contemporary confessional bibliology. He was not reformed in his theologies from the Church of England. It's clear, though, that he took a more conservative approach to the scriptures. Scribner was no doubt influenced by the currents of modern textual criticism as it aggressively pressed its case in the late 19th century. We see that same influence even on someone like Spurgeon. One can simply review Scribner's entries on various disputed texts in his plain introduction to see the influence of modern textual criticism. Nevertheless, he also clearly had a love for the authorized version and an impulse to defend the traditional underlying text on which it was based. In the opening pages of his plain introduction, for example, Scribner makes reference to the traditional ending of Mark and the Pericope Adulteri, calling them weighty passages. He then adds the following, quote, We shall hereafter defend these passages, the first, meaning the traditional ending of Mark, without the slightest misgiving, the second to a high degree of probability, as entitled to be regarded authentic portions of the Gospels in which they stand, end quote. In 1872, Scribner was granted a civil pension in recognition of his services in connection with biblical criticism. In 1874, he became prebendary, not sure exactly what that office means, but it's an honorary canon office, and he was made this, given this office at Exeter, In 1872, he received the honorary LLD Doctor of Law degree from St. Andrews University, and in 1876, the honorary DCL Doctor of Civil Law degree from Oxford. In 1876, he received the vicarage of Hendon, Middlesex. In 1884, he suffered a paralytic stroke, perhaps hastened by his fevered work a year earlier to complete the third edition of his plain introduction, and he lived in ill health till his death in 1891. Marchant, his biographer, in his 1897 sketch of Scribner's life, concludes the article with these words, quote, Scribner held firmly to the traditional text of the New Testament, declining to accept the theories of modern critics as to the comparative lateness of the Textus Receptus. And then he says, his arguments have not found general support as against those of Westcott and Hort, end quote. Now, let's talk, let's talk about Scribner the man. Let's talk about 
the addition of the Texas Receptus that he uh, was responsible for editing and, and printing. So uh, he composed the work in 1880, and it was first published in 1881. In the front matter, it points out that the original title of this work was The New Testament in Greek According to the Text Followed in the Authorized Version Together with Variations Adopted in the Revised Version. The work was published by the syndics of the Cambridge University Press. The first edition was in 1881. It was reprinted twice more in 1881, in 1883, in 1884, in 1886, in 1890, in 1908, and in 1949 by Cambridge University Press. If you look at that original, uh, it has three parts. First, there is a preface, and the preface begins... Quote, the special design of this volume is to place clearly before the reader the variations from the Greek text represented by the authorized version of the New Testament, which had been embodied in the revised version. He then explains that this was in response to a rule given to the revision committee by the convocation of Canterbury that they were to make notes of places where, quote, the text adopted differs from that which the authorized version was from that which the authorized version was made. Rather than provide a long list of these differences, Scribner explains, it was determined to be more desirable to produce this text since, quote, the authorized version was not a translation of any one Greek text then in existence and no Greek text intended to reproduce in any way the original of the authorized version has ever been printed, end quote. He adds that Beza's fifth and latest text of 1598 was more likely than any other to be in the hands of the King James Version revisers and to be accepted by them as the best standard within their reach. It is, moreover, he continues, found on comparison to agree more closely with the authorized version than any other Greek text. He further acknowledges that the authorized version does not always follow Beza, however, and sometimes, he says, it corresponds but loosely with any form of the extant Greek original. Scribner also relays that he set down in an appendix to this work about 190 variations from Beza's 1598 Greek New Testament, which appear in the text. Scribner ends the preface with a quotation in continuous Greek text from the beginning of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's signed F-H-A-S, Christmas 1880. They've got the preface. Then there's the text, the text of the New Testament. When you look at the text proper in the original 1881 edition, you see that there are places in the text where it differs from the revised version. They put the text in bold font. And then they put a footnote at the bottom of the page telling you how uh, the text in the TR differed from the text that was used in the English Revised Version. And then there's also an asterisk at every point in the text where it differs from Beza's 1598. So there are 190 of these asterisks throughout the text. And then last of all, there is the appendix. The appendix begins, quote, containing a list of the passages marked with an asterisk 
In the Greek text of this volume, wherein the readings of Beza's New Testament 1598 are departed from to agree with those adopted by the authorized version on the authority of certain earlier Greek editions, end quote. He then lists the early printed editions of the Greek New Testament and the printed Protestant editions of the TR, which he consulted to compose his text. They include the following, the Complutensian New Testament of 1514, Erasmus's five editions, 1516, 1519, 1522, 1527, 1535, the Aldine of 1518, the Colonnaeus of 1534, the Stephanus in four editions, 1546, 1549, 1550, 1551, So, Scribner is telling us that he consulted 18 printed editions of the Greek New Testament in compiling his work. The TBS edition. It is clear that Scribner's Greek New Testament was well received at its initial publication, given that it was reprinted twice more in the same year in which it appeared, and frequently in the years that followed. But, if you look at the printing tradition you see a trajectory. It began to slow. And by the early 20th century, it was not being reprinted as frequently. Why? Because of the rise of the popularity of the modern critical text. In 1976, the Trinitarian Bible Society produced its own edition of this work under the title He Kaine Diatheke, The New Testament with the subtitle taken from Scribner, the Greek text underlying the English authorized version. And there are copies of this that are for sale at the TBS table at the back. This new edition replaced Scribner's original preface with a brief two-page preface, which is well worth reading. I always tell students when I'm teaching Survey of the New Testament, when you pick up a Bible, you should always read the front matter. Read the preface. It tells you what the translation philosophy is, what, what... what text it's based upon. And so it's, it, read those couple pages, a lot of information in a short space. Uh, also, within their uh, reprinting of it, they, uh, again, took out the long original introduction, have a two-page preface, uh, and they also took out from the text the bold that marked the differences from the uh, English Revised Version, They also took out the asterisks that mark the places where it differs from Beza so that you have simply the text itself to work with. It's much simpler, much cleaner, just to look at the text and to read it. Scribner's is not a work of modern textual criticism. We noted above, what was one of the things that Green said? He said, Scribner, he didn't consult the manuscripts, compare readings, and thus figure out which ones were authentic, and he's criticizing Scribner for that. But that's something that's granted. Scribner's was not a work of modern textual criticism. It it does not use reasoned eclecticism. It's not going to the manuscripts, comparing them. It's looking at printed editions of the TR. It's a work based on the comparison of 18 printed editions of the TR using the preeminent and unrivaled English Protestant translation of 
the day, the authorized version, as a guideline for the text. We should not rush negatively to evaluate this approach from our contemporary perspective with our crowded Bible market and its plethora of niche translations. At Christmas of 1880, when Scribner completed this work, there was only one Protestant English translation of the Bible that was used anywhere, and it was the authorized version. You can't hardly fault the man for uh, using that as a guide in compiling this work. That's when he completed it in, in Christmas of 1880. The next year, the English Revised Version, which is the mother translation for the American Standard Version, and then the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version, and also for the ESV. The ESV is the daughter of the RSV, of the English Revised Version. Anyways, that would be released the next year, and by the way, it tanked initially. It didn't sell well, and the Authorized Version continued to be used among English-speaking people. But it was perfectly fitting at the time that he composed this that the AV readings would direct his text. He was also required to do this by the convocation at Canterbury. The idea of a printed edition of the Greek New Testament drawn from previous printed editions and not from study, comparison, and deliberation over manuscripts, that is, textual criticism, was nothing unusual or extraordinary for those times. And it remains so even up to the present day. In fact, the first edition of Eberhard Nessel's Novum Testamentum Graeche, first edition of 1898, followed a similar design. In the booklet, Textual Research on the Bible, an introduction to the scholarly editions of the German Bible Society, we find this description of the Novum Testamentum Graeche, first edition, 1898. Quote, it was edited by Eberhard Nessel and followed a simple but nonetheless ingenious principle. Nessel compared the three most significant editions of the Greek New Testament from the 19th century, Tischendorf, Westcott and Hort, and Weymouth. The last mention was replaced by the edition of Bernard Weiss in 1901. Whenever one of these differed from the other two, Nessel adopted the reading given in the two identical versions and supplied a note in the apparatus showing the divergent reading, end quote. In fact, it was only in the 13th edition of the Nessel-Aland, or what was then just the Nessel, Novum Testamentum Graeche, 13th edition of 1927, under the editorship of Erwin Nessel, who was the son of Eberhard, that, quote, this edition was for the first time further developed with the addition of its own apparatus criticus that cited not only other scholarly editions, but also the most important reference manuscripts. However, Nessel did not consult manuscripts directly, but continued to compile his information on their readings from the other scholarly editions, end quote. Furthermore, it was not until the 25th edition of this work in 1963, that then co-editor Kurt Aland, quote, 
was the first to verify the information in the text and critical apparatus against the originals themselves, end quote. Along with his colleagues at the Institute for New Testament Textual Research, which he established in 1959, quote, he also extended the apparatus to include readings from many additional manuscripts, end quote. So get this. We've only had what we know today as the modern critical text handbook in the form with which we're familiar since 1963. In addition, there are also modern editions of the Greek New Testament based on the approach that is, that is similar to that taken by Scribner's TR and in the early editions of the Novum Testamentum Graeche. Some of you may be familiar with the Greek New Testament SBL edition published in 2010 by Scholars Press in Atlanta, which is the main arm for the Society of Biblical Literature. So this work was published in 2010, edited by Michael W. Holmes. It follows the same basic method of comparing printed editions rather than looking at individual manuscripts. The introduction to that work notes, quote, in particular, four editions of the Greek New Testament were utilized as primary resources in the process of establishing the SBL Greek New Testament, end quote. The four editions that they used were Westcott and Hortz, Tregalus's, a Reader's Greek New Testament, published in 2003, which is a reconstruction of the Greek text behind the NIV, and Robinson Pierpont's Byzantine text form of 2005. Note, I haven't heard anyone yet accuse the Greek New Testament SBL edition of 2010 of NIV onlyism. Conclusion on this point. There's nothing strange or unusual about the approach taken by Scrivener to base his text both on the usage of the predominant Protestant translation of the Bible in his native language and on comparison of previous printed Greek editions of the TR. Now, let's move on to Green's comment quoted earlier that Scribner's TR was back translated into Greek from the KJV following, quote, the exact words of the KJV. Is that true? Let me show you several examples to illustrate that Scribner did not merely slavishly follow the King James Version, but rather attempted to reflect the family of printed editions of the TR as utilized by the King James Version translators. Let me begin with several general translation examples and then move on to four major textual examples. So let's start off first with three general examples. So here's one example. In Matthew 15, verse 27, it's the account of the Canaanite woman who comes to the Lord. And I was preaching on this. I'm preaching through Matthew right now, just recently. And I came across this, and in the King James Version of Matthew 5, 15, 27, rather, it reads, And she said, Truth, Lord. And I actually said when I was preaching, I said, Guys, I, I would like for us to start making that a saying in our church. <laughs> Truth, Lord. I'll, I'll say it every once in a while, and they'll remember that passage. Truth, Lord. Well, if Scribner was slavishly following the King James Version, as we're led to believe, 
we might expect that if we were to look at Scrivener, that we would find the noun, aletheia, truth, or we would find the adverb, truly, alethos, here in the Greek text. Perhaps we might think we might find the term used by Jesus himself. That's what Christian suggested to me when I talked with him about this. Amen. But if you look at Scribner's TR, it reads here, He de ipen nai curie. And it's new alpha iota, the, the particle yes. That's the reading of Stephanus. That's the reading of Beza. That's the reading of the Nesolon 28th edition. You get my point? That's not a back translation into Greek uh, from the King James Version. Else he would have used Aletheia or Alethos or Amen. Second translational example. Had an old pastor point this out to me years ago at a pastoral fraternal. He came up to me and said, have you ever noticed Luke 137? The King James Version in Luke 137 reads, For with God, nothing shall be impossible. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. But if you look at Scribner's TR for Luke 137, it reads, Hati uk adunatesai para totheo pan rema. This is the reading in Stephanus. It's the reading in Beza. It's also the reading in the Nesolon 28th edition. If we were to translate that literally, it would read something like, for it is not impossible with God every word, rhema, or that term can mean word, thing, or deed. But that doesn't sound a whole lot like a literal rendering in the King James Version, for with God nothing shall be impossible. If Scrivener followed the exact words of the King James Version, it would possibly read, hati paratotheo uk Adunatesai. That's not what it reads. The point, Scrivener did not back translate from the King James Version. Third, in the King James Version, at the beginning of Romans 6.2, we had the first appearance of Paul's classic response phrase, God forbid. If Scrivener were just slavishly back translating the King James Version and matching up the exact words, we might expect to find in Scrivener's the first word here to be theos, God, because it says God forbid. But if you look at the text of Scrivener, instead you read meganoito, let it not be. This is the reading of Stephanus of Beza and the Nesolon 28th edition. God forbid is a dynamic translation of the Greek in the King James Version. These examples show that Scrivener hardly back-translated or reverse-engineered his text from the King James Version. Now, I want to look, secondly, at four more significant textual examples that show on a deeper level that Scrivener was not back-translating the King James Version. And I'm going to take these in canonical order except for the last one. Let's begin with John 10, verse 16. John 10, verse 16. In the King James Version, it reads, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. 
And the thing we want to focus on is the term one fold. If you read John 10, 16 in Scribner, you'll find that that term one fold that's translated as one fold in the Greek of Scribner is mia poime, poimne, mia poimne. So the King James Version reads one fold. And actually that's sort of in keeping as far as the English translation with the reference of other sheep I have which are not of this fold at the beginning of the verse. If Scribner was slavishly attempting to follow the exact words of the King James Version, we would expect the term that's translated as one fold to read in Scribner, mia aule, literally one fold. But instead, it reads mia poimne, which literally means one flock. Again, it's another dynamic King James Version rendering. I'm not saying the King James Version translation there is wrong, but it's a dynamic rendering of the term. Poimne, rendering it in English as fold, uh, rather than as flock. Scribner's text followed the consensus of the TR family of printed editions, as indeed this is the reading found in Stephanus, Beza, and even in the Nesolon 28th edition. Second of these four examples, Acts 19, verse 20. In the King James Version, Acts 19, 20 reads, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The key phrase here is the term, the word of God. If you look this up in the Greek text of Scribner, at Acts 19, 20, in the corresponding place where the King James Version is rendered as the word of God, it reads, Halagos to Kuryu. If Scribner here was just back translating the King James Version into Greek, we would expect it to read, Halagos to Theu, and not Halagos to Kuryu. Scribner's text instead follows the family of printed TR editions. This is the reading found in Stephanus and Beza. Nesolon 28 follows a variant here. The King James Version translation is not necessarily inaccurate here, but again allows for a unique variation for the translation of the term kurios, choosing to use God rather than Lord. And in fact, if you read the preface to the King James Version, they say that they're going to use variety. They're not going to use the same English word for the same Greek word in every place. And so they're true to that, to that translation philosophy. Third example. Hebrews 10.23. In the King James Version, it reads, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he that is faithful, for he is faithful that promised. The phrase in question here is the profession of our faith. If you look at Scribner's Greek edition at Hebrews 10.23, for that corresponding translation, the profession of our faith, you see the Greek words, te, tein, hama, logion, tes, elpidos, or elpidos. If Scribner slavishly followed the King James Version, we would expect his text to read, tein, hama, logion, tes, pisteos. He would use pistis rather than elpis. 
Instead, we again find that Scrivener follows the family of TR printed editions, as this is the reading of Stephanus and Beza, and in this case, it's also the reading of the Nesvalon 28th edition. Now, you might ask, why did the authorized version render this as the profession of our faith? Okay, I can understand if Kyrios is going to be rendered as God, but if it says in the text uh, the profession of, of our hope, Elpis, why did they render it as faith? There's a very interesting discussion of this in John Owen's commentary on Hebrews. And you know he wrote a massive commentary on Hebrews. In volume six of that commentary, pages 514 to 518, he does a detailed study of this verse. And within it, he acknowledges that the reading, as he puts it, in some copies reads the, uh, the profession of our hope, but argues that the translation here in the authorized version, the profession of our faith, is more fitting and can be rightly taken as the proper rendering of the text. He writes, quote, For on our faith our hope is built and is an eminent fruit thereof. Wherefore, holding fast our hope, including in it the holding fast of our faith, as the cause is in the effect, and the building in the foundation. And probably what that tells us is that was the mindset of men of that era. So perhaps it's not surprising that that, that's the way the rendering came out in the authorized version. You know, one of the odd things in, in Mark Ward's talk at Bob Jones Seminary, he gave an anecdote about someone he knows who held to the, I think it was somebody in IFB circles, who supposedly this text completely destroyed his confidence in the Bible. I'm like, why? Why would this destroy your confidence in the Bible? Fourth example, Ephesians 6.24. I saved this last one for last and out of canonical order, since it is a difference of another sort. It is a place where Scrivener explicitly does not follow the King James Version. The issue is one word, the final amen. In the King James Version of Ephesians 6.24, it reads, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. If you look at Scrivener's, however, in Ephesians 6.24, there is no amen at the end of the Greek text there. The final amen appears in the whole TR family of printed editions. The final amen is in Stephanus, it's in Beza, it's in the Elzevirs. It also appears in all the Protestant translations. Tyndale, Geneva, Reina Valera, Karoli Gaspar, Hungarian. Oddly enough, Scribner does not even list this departure from Beza in his appendix. With respect to textual evidence, according to Nesolon 28th edition, the Amen is absent in P46. It's absent in the original hand of Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, among others. The Nesolon 28th edition thus omits it. It is, however, present in the second corrector of Sinaiticus and in the unseals D, K, L, P, and Psi, and it is the reading of the majority text. If there is any one place where one might suggest an adjustment to Scrivener, 
I believe it is here with the addition of the Amen. And I think I've heard at least one person say he just took his Scrivener and wrote Amen at the end of Ephesians. Um, well, friends, I hope that you, would, you might agree with me by this time that to call Scrivener's TR a Greek text based on an English translation or to say that it is back-translated into Greek from the King James Version, or that it slavishly followed the exact words of the KJV, is highly inaccurate. It is also not reasonable or fair to cast aspersions on Scrivener's TR, because it took into consideration the readings of the Protestant English translation of its day, and followed what had been universally affirmed, past and present, as a legitimate method of establishing a printed text of the Greek New Testament by making use of previous printed editions of that text. Attacks upon Scrivener, as with attacks upon Erasmus, are simply attempts to downgrade the credibility and integrity of the text followed by those who hold to the traditional Protestant text, and to replace it with a supposedly new and improved modern critical text. I get tired of these commentaries where they say, the TR follows the, is based on the writings of Erasmus, a Catholic. (laughs) Well, everybody was a Catholic in Western Europe in 1516. Luther didn't tap the, the, the 95 Theses until 1517, October 31, 1517. We, 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 don't, we don't think that Erasmus got some things right about the, his initial printing of the received text in Greek, or giving us the foundation of it in 1516 because of his theology. Nor do we rely on Scribner's because of his theology, although I think he was a generally conservative man. Well, that's the first point. Do I have time to hit the second just a little bit? This is going to be a lot briefer. Secondly, how do we respond to the charge of textual absolutism? Our opponents tell us that to seek the kind of certainty and confidence that we desire in the text of Scripture is a vice rather than a virtue. Former Westminster Seminary Old Testament professor Peter Enns, who lost his position in controversy over his reinterpretation of inerrancy and his suggestion that the theology of the Old Testament was more like than unlike that found in pagan ancient Near Eastern religions, wrote a book a few years ago titled The Sin of Certainty. It's a sin to be certain about your faith. It's a sin to be confident. He certainly wasn't an absolutist. James White often parrots Daniel Wallace, who is fond of saying something similar. Don't trade the truth for certainty. These people are just trying to trade the truth for certainty. Well, friends, why do the truth and certainty have to be at odds with one another? The sad thing is that many of these evangelicals are just repeating the same errors and the same mantras of Protestant liberalism. Go back to the early 20th century and you see the same tired arguments being made. 
In the first episode of Mark Ward's recent textual collective, one panelist said, we don't need to focus on the purity of the text. We just need to focus on the gospel. And Mark Ward in another episode said, we should only be absolute where there is warrant to be absolutist. He declared, I'm a resurrection absolutist. I'm a virgin birth absolutist. The implication being, you don't have to be an absolutist on the text of the Bible as long as you are an absolutist on the doctrines of the Bible. Here's the problem. How do you know these doctrines? Where do you get the information to understand these doctrines? Well, friends, you get them from the Bible. If you take away the Bible, it's certainty, it's authority, it's integrity. If you don't know what the Bible is, how can you know what it says? Even Bart Ehrman knows that. Textual absolutist is not a shameful title, but one of which we can be proud. William Whitaker was a textual absolutist. John Owen was a textual absolutist. So was Francis Turretin. We're in good company, friends. Our theme this weekend has been the received text and apologetics. The text of the Bible is the foundation of authority for Christians. It was certainly seen that way by the early Protestants. We're living in a time when the Roman Catholic Church is reeling. They have two popes right now. And one of them is is spouting universalism. They are reeling right now. I listened to a couple of trad Catholic podcasts, and they're up in arms. They're in disarray. There are lots of young men, especially in our nation right now, who are so disillusioned with the the culture and cancel culture and and all the the wokeism that many of them are, are seeking things that are traditional, old, and valuable. A lot of them, a lot of them who grew up in evangelical churches are going to Eastern Orthodoxy because the the Eastern Orthodox apologetic is we have unity, we have authority. Of course, what they don't tell them is that there's a lot of division among Eastern Orthodox. (laughs) Just... Try to talk to them about what's happening in Ukraine right now between the Russian Orthodox Church and the autocephalic Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And as I heard someone say, a lot of these people idealistically listen to the Eastern Orthodox apologists and they enter into the, they become Eastern Orthodox and then they go into an Eastern Orthodox parish where they're dealing with basically national ethnocentrism of you're not Ukrainian, you can't really be part of this church. Or you're not Romanian, you really can't be part of this church. We're living in an age where we have Muslims who are telling us, your Bible is corrupted. Puyan Mershai has shared with us that in Iran, the government, they have a religion department, the government is reprinting the works of modern textual academics, including evangelicals, into Farsi because they think it's so helpful in promoting the idea that our scriptures are corrupted. 
Friends, this is the this is the apologetic landscape we're living in today, right now. If you're a Protestant, you take away our Bible. What do we have to say to someone who's wavering between Rome and Constantinople and Mecca? You take away our authority. You take away the word of God. What do we have to say? What do we have to preach? What do we have to stand for? Friends, received text apologetics is not a crazy, obscure topic that Christian McShaffrey came up with for this year's conference. (laughs) It's as relevant as relevant can get. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word, kept pure in all ages. We remember that Christ uh, prayed for us, that we would be sanctified by thy word, that thy word is truth. And so we give thee thanks for this opportunity we've had to be together with these friends. And we ask that uh, you would bless the things that we've uh, learned, the conversations we've had, and that these things would be remembered and they would help us in our growth and our faith and our conformity to Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.